Eliza's going to uh, come and speak to us. We um, do an occasional series, which we call Soapbox, and it allows um, people who are part of the community here to tell us a little bit about their story, and more importantly, to tell us about what excites them, inspires them, uh, the vision that they have, the things that they think are important. And so it's fantastic that Eliza, who's... Um, a very committed part, faithful part of this church, a real servant to uh, us all, actually, in lots of ways, has this opportunity this morning. And you can uh, read a little bit about Eliza on the front of the news sheet. Um, the reading um, is a very short one. I'd like you to uh, listen to it. Some words from one of the Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk, from chapter 2. And then it's uh, Habakkuk has been asking God questions and God, Yahweh, replies and this is Yahweh's response. The Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. Wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. I'm going to leave Eliza to unpack that as she comes to speak to us. Now I ought to say this, that as Eliza speaks, you in your new sheet should have a piece of blank paper somewhere. Have you got that? And um, the way that Soapbox operates is this. Eliza's going to speak um, for, a, uh, for just a quarter of an hour, absolutely no more. Then we're going to uh, listen to some music, in which time you've got a chance to ask Eliza some questions. And we're going to spend ten more minutes just... You can ask Eliza anything you like about what she said, something you agree with, disagree with, something you want to know more about, get in more depth. So as she's speaking... Um, get that written down. Eliza's looking worried now, but she has no need to look worried. She understands this subject very well. So, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for Eliza. Wow, what power. <laughs> People in small group have tried to insinuate all sorts of things that I might use this mic to say, <laughs> but um, I shall refrain from profanity. Anders. Okay, I'm going to get my uh, timer up. I've been bumped up to five minutes, um, so I'm going to get it started. But um, let's just quickly pray before we start. Um, God of yesterday, today, and forever, um, give these words more meaning than a 15-minute placeholder in people's lives, that they might... Um, Transform me, even as I speak them, that I may humbly deliver them, and that um, let every hear hear, and every every heart receive, and let every eye see. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, um, I've written down what I was going to say because I wanted to make sure I said it in time, but also because I wanted to tell tell it like a little story. But before I do that, um, I'll introduce myself so that you have some sense of who this person is. So um, my name is Eliza, and um, I've been coming to this church for about five years, something like that. Um, I'm a journalist. I used to be a full-time editor at The Guardian um, for 
a long time. I'll talk a bit more about that later. And, um, and then left The Guardian to work at CNN, I freelanced there for a bit, and then um, basically have been freelancing since November 2014. Um, and what I do is I still write. I mostly write opinion these days. Um, I write columns sometimes. Um, and I mostly write about Africa, about women. Um, and I've set up my own platform focusing on telling African women's stories, um, which is why I'm here, I guess, to talk about all those things and how they intersect. So here's um, what I've prepared. In Things Fall Apart, Nigerian writer Ch um, Chinua Chebe tells the story of the utter decimation of a family, a community, and ultimately a way of life that begins with the arrival of a man on a metal horse. We later learn, if you've read the book, that the horse is a bicycle, that this man is a missionary, that the British brought Christianity as a stick and education as the carrot to subjugate people into a colonial order that was decided thousands of miles from where they lived. The logic of colonial expansion was definitely above everything else economic, but it came soaked in white supremacy, the notion that because of the color of your skin, you are better than me and therefore can turn me into commodity to trade. It ignored the willful and then it, it ignored and then willfully destroyed the complexity, the beauty and the advancement of African societies in order to exploit. And what I'm here to say is that actually we still do the same today. Um, now bear with me because every time we talk about slavery and colonialism in this country and particularly to a progressive audience, um, there's some deep sighs, some eye rolling, like not that old chestnut again, like just, just move on already. Um, but I want to say that actually this old chestnut is still very well and alive. Um, and that the reason that I talk about this issue, particularly with a progressive audience, is that um, what colonialism did was it erased my story. It erased the story of countless of millions of people. Um, they became known simply within a narrative that was written for someone else, for someone else's agenda. And that actually, if we are to um, move beyond it, we need to understand it. And we need to understand the wider system in which we are still complicit. And that actually to be able to address these problems, you cannot address the problems of people you do not see. You cannot include and hold space for people and for stories you do not know. Um, so, and you cannot check privilege unless you understand how privilege works. And this is the work I've been doing. While I was at The Guardian, I've only ever worked on development stories. Um, I started off on a project called the Katine Project, which was focused on a specific community in Uganda. And the, the, the Katine Project was meant to talk about in real time what development looked like in this community. And I was shocked that Guardian readers were asking questions like, is this pet family really poor? They're smiling in the picture. Or they're playing football. Like, you know, if you're poor, you should just get on with the job of getting out of poverty. Like, playing football is a distraction from your poverty. Oh, I forgot I had slides. Can you please switch this? <laughs> they weren't working a minute ago. There we go. Just leave it at that one for a minute. Um, and um, yeah, so that's what I did at The Guardian. And uh, I told international development stories. And when I became an editor, I saw my role as a gatekeeper to be able to change the types of stories we hear. Because you don't have to be African. Actually, we've just been hearing feminist stories that even if you're just a woman in this country, you will find yourself very unrepresented in the news. You can go, there's a word now, man, 
panels to talk about male-only panels that we can go to. And you have, you know, I, I tweeted the other day, um, I was in Athens and somebody came up to me um, to explain to me the, the story I had just said or what we had just heard. And then I tweeted how from Athens to Angola, men explained things to me. Um, you know, it's this sense of that you may have said something, but I'm going to make this plain to you. Um, so it's, this is, I guess, when we talk about uh, intersections, to add on to my femininity, my Africanness, my blackness, um, it means that actually I'm further and further and further and further and further erased from the narrative. And so when I left The Guardian, it was to start a project called The Nzinga Effect, because when I saw this picture of the Hottentot Venus, um, she was a woman from Southern Africa um, who, uh, because of her large posterior, um, was brought over to Europe, to England, um, and was basically paraded around. And there were human zoos as well, where um, black people, people of African descent, could be, could be gawked at. Um, and I really, as I looked at this picture, just wondered to myself as a journalist, as a person who loves stories, what is it like to be seen and not heard? What is it like on the streets of where we are currently for people who are seen and spoken of but never heard? What is it like to have no agency? And what does it mean um, when you carry a label but you didn't decide that label for you? And if you take pride in the label, what does that actually say? Like if I was to find, take pride in the fact that I'm a black African, am I trying to claw back territory from the only territory that I've been given, right? Um, if we are essentially, if race is a construct that actually you are not white or Indian or, or, or brown or black, um, that actually race is something that has been constructed to exercise power, what does it mean then if we're trying to move beyond race when all the economic systems still depend on it? Can you please change slide? Yes. Um, I didn't make that up. It's something, just when I was, um, I saw it shared online, it's on handbags. <laughs> um, and I just thought it has nothing to do, obviously, with the fact that with anybody being a white male, it's all about privilege and it's all about power and it's all about access and so this notion of carry yourself with the confidence of a middle of a mediocre white man is that actually if I was to go into a workplace and not be seen for my name or my hair or all the other things that I have to sort of um, bring into into line what would that mean about how I carry myself in the world next slide please so that's where I am today in terms of the work that I do. I'm just going to make sure my time is still working great. Okay. Um, I started a platform called the Nzinga Effect. It's focusing on telling African women's stories. And when I went to the bank to open a bank account, because I want to run this as a social enterprise, the bank manager asked me why I was excluding everybody else. <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same thing you get told, you know, on, I don't know, in Black History Month. It's like, well, this is a very racist idea. Um, and it's like, no, you have 11 months of the year to tell your stories. Give me one. Um, and so Nzinga focuses on telling African women stories because of all the reasons I've just mentioned. Because we're excluded and our stories are invisible. Because it's important to be able to hear them, as a friend said to me very recently, because narratives are the weapons of the weak. Um, if you please flip the slide. But as I was just saying, 
for all the power that narratives have, they won't change anything if they're not situated within a wider discussion about power and about economic structures. Um, and I was asked, um, you know, what, what to do about our narratives. Why, you know, Eliza, you work at The Guardian or you've been on the BBC, etc. Um, you know, how can we get them to better tell our stories? And I explained that actually the stories that we value most have everything to do with power and with productivity. We work, we operate in a society that says the most valuable people are the ones who contribute the most to the GDP, to our GDP, right? So a, a, a bank manager is far more valuable than a teacher, than a, than a, and so for a lot of women who work, whose work is invisible, then you cannot actually um, determine that our society, our structures, do not determine you as valuable because your work is invisible. And now when you add on top of that, you know, um, all the different other um, ways in which race and class intersect. I said, it is, race is a construct, yes, and in my personal life, I would love to move beyond it and to see people as just people and to interact with stories. But we cannot shift power structures unless we understand them. It is power structures that hold race firmly in place. This is why black and brown children in this country tend to live above the fourth floor of tower blocks. We, we learned this with Grenfell. This is why um, a study that came out in the States just last week showed that um, black girls 5 to 14 years of age are perceived as being more sexually aware, more sexually active than white girls of the same age. This is why black boys in this city are stopped and searched. It is why if you're sat on the top deck of a bus and a group of white kids are being loud, they're, they're having a good time. And if a group of black kids are being loud, they're an angry mob. We need to understand how we perceive um, the, the reasons why we hold certain perceptions in order, in order to be able to change them. So what does this have to do with my Christianity? I've often felt that if we're talking about labels, I wear my Christianity almost the way David wore um, King Saul's armor. It, is a, it, it feels like a coat made for somebody else, for somebody else's battle. Um, and that actually, when I look and I hear Christian stories, I don't often see myself reflected in them that um, though they are Latin American and African theologians, that these stories are never part of our mainstream Christian discourse. That their experience, that the history that they bring with them, that their struggle is never valuable to a wider audience except to the ones to which they ascribe. Like my bank manager, we only hear African theology, theology within that context or Latin American theology within that context. And so it still says today that actually the, the white experience is the one that applies to us all. It is that reason for which when I was 14, I, hit, I was knocking my hips against the wall, thinking that I was too African in my shape, or that actually I would never in this dominant system be considered attractive enough. So I stick with Jesus because I think that his story is about solidarity. He never tried to erase people. He never tried to erase their experience. He never tried to erase their story. In fact, he never tried to take up their space. He stood alongside them. He was like, oh, nobody judges you? Well, neither do I. And I think that actually as progressive people, what we should do is to be able to learn people's stories, to include them in our narratives, to make their narratives our narrative so that we can stand in solidarity with them. I'm only interested in identity politics if it gets us to a place where identity politics builds solidarity. I was talking to a friend, Lucy, um, who's visiting from Mexico. Hey, Lucy. Um, Lucy's mom would be very worried that she's in the church, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> 
Um, and we were talking about politics and solidarity, and she was telling me the story of a North American woman who came to understand herself within the US context because she came to understand the African American struggle, because she came to understand the class struggle, because she came to understand you know, the, um, the struggle for people of different sexualities. I think that all of those are only important if they work to bring us together. If my identity just serves f for me to become a new group that, cost, um, that businesses can market to, if my site only serves to identify a group so that I can get people to sell products to, then my identity politics don't matter. So what matters most is that as Christians, as we think about how we can progressively include people, we understand and we know the labels that they wear and the labels that we put on them so that we can learn the stories behind those labels. So the point of the scripture that we read was I really think that this idea of writing down the vision and so that someone can take it and run. I often joke on Nzinga that if a boy called Bruce in Adelaide in Australia reads and shares our stories, we have won. We have been successful because the stories of African women don't just matter to African women. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, did you go to SOAS? Yeah. Oh, okay. You sound like a SOAS alumni. Um, so, uh, <laughs> say again. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, so we've got a few minutes now where everybody can write down questions that that talk has provoked. Uh, so please do get that piece of paper out of your community news sheet. Scribble down your questions. It can be anything at all related to this topic. Um, so as I said, the music will just play and you can write those down for a few minutes. Okay then, folks, thank you so much for those of you who've been handing your questions in. Um, if you do want to carry on handing them to Simon, he will bring them to the front, although we're probably going to run out of time. So we've tried to pick questions that we feel uh, summarise uh, broadly what people are asking. If we do find we've got a couple of extra minutes, as I said, Steve's just having a look through those final questions to see if there's any more particularly good ones. So if I can invite Eliza back up. Um, so just a note that I did want to read out. Um, it says, we are proud to be Eliza's parents and to realise that her upbringing hasn't been in vain. This isn't your moment, Mother. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> Thank you. It's about me. Um, okay, then. What a chance, man. So these two questions um, we feel are linked. Okay, um, so I'll give them both to you and then you can respond how you want to. So can you explain further about your Christianity feeling like an ill-fitting armour? Yeah. And then this question that's linked, how did you find a way to separate your faith and the dark legacy of colonialism and religion in Africa? Wow. Um, come to Tim's small group on Wednesday. Okay, <laughs> we talk about this stuff. Okay, uh, this is working, yes. Okay, so on to the first question. Um, I say my Christianity feels like an ill-fitting armor simply because um, there were, there were uh, traditions, religious traditions and faiths that existed pre-Christianity in the part of the world that I'm from. And that actually in the version of Christianity that I practice even today, it was formed by Victorians, right? So the sort of prudishness, the, 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 um, the, the strictness of those uh, religious views um, met forcefully against the traditions that existed before. Colonialism and slavery before it not just sort of decimated a people, they said that everything about me 
my history, my culture, my skin, my hair, my clothes, all these things are unacceptable. So when you talk to, when you go into a church, when I'm from Cameroon, when I go to church in Cameroon, I do not see in it, apart from in the sort of drumbeat of the music, we sing hymns, we, I don't see in it anything that recognizes the long history of the people that came before. Um, and so this is why I say my Christianity feels like an ill-fitting um, armor, because actually um, I don't think that God uh, belongs to any group of people. So I, I, can be, I feel entirely confident to say that I am a Christian, but I want to see as I want to see him reflected. I want to see myself reflected in the stories we tell. And I have to seek that out for myself. I do not see that on a, on a main stage. And I think often a lot of people who are brought up Christian um, and who probably are interested in a certain pol politics um, fall away from Christianity um, because they feel like it, is a, it, is a, it was a vehicle of uh, war. <laughs> um, and the second question was... How did you find a way to separate your yeah. faith and the dark legacy of colonialism in Africa? Um, I haven't. I don't, I don't even want to separate them. I think that um, to sit with the discomfort of what it means to speak to people and say that I'm a Christian, to understand that history, I think that the, the, the desire to separate, to make things neat and, um, you know, passable is what means that we often turn our eyes away from really difficult conversations. So the complexity of what it means to be human is compounded by the complexity of what it means to be a human Christian and all these, all these other lenses through which I, I operate in the world. Um, so I look at the colonial history and I look at the stories of Christ and I see in him a, a radical person who was radical in his practice of love and radical in his way he challenged systems and stood with the oppressed. And so in that I can recognize myself. I just struggle often with the sort of, with the mainstream representation of this person because that sort of radical theology is missing often. Okay, thank you. So these are two um, slightly more practical questions. Um, would I not look like a fraud if I supported your movement but was a different race? Absolutely not. If I'm quoting Hillary Clinton, do I, am I a fraud? If I work at The Guardian where my leadership uh, of the organization is mostly white, am I a fraud? <laughs> Right? That's the challenge, right? That I can somehow fit into a white environment, but non, uh, that white people can't fit into a non-white environment. The question is the spirit in which I operate. Like that there's a certain amount, the expectation, and not just here, but just generally to assimilate. <laughs> um, if assimilate was replaced with learn, engage, <laughs> You know, that's something that works both ways. Assimilation implies that I become lesser of who I am and more like you, right? But if you want to work, I mean, the editor on our site, Kate Hodge, is a blonde girl from Yorkshire. And what's great about Kate is that she can read and understand and share the stories. Why? Because they're stories of human experience, right? So if race is a construct, then beyond, this is why I'm passionate about storytelling, if you can get beyond what you see as difference, essentially the stories are ones that can inspire and engage us all. So if you feel like a fraud, it's because you can't get past the surface. Um, so final question, I'm just going to link to here. Uh, really the question is, what can we do to help the church move forward and be uh, truly inclusive? And also, kind of, this is more of a practical question, um, what do we need to realise about our church culture, I guess particularly Oasis Church Waterloo, uh, that may not be attractive to local non-white residents? Yeah, I think often the 
onus is put on oppressed or marginalized people to seek to become part of the discussion. Um, there's a writer, Rennie uh, Edo Lodge, whose book has just come out, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And in it, she's saying that she's, ex she's tired about having to explain as a minority in Britain about her history. Why is it that, you know, um, she's the one who has to not only tell you her experience, but then provide some sort of remedy, right? That it is up to progressive people to be like, I am interested in this, I am going to learn about this, I am going to tell my friends, I'm going to take it to my communities, right? There is a certain sort of um, comfort with saying, oh, this is good to know, but I'll wait for it to come to me. <laughs> Right? But then we are complicit in those structures because of how we spend our money, because of how we move in public spaces, because of all these things. Right? If we look at gentrification as an issue, it's not just about housing, it's about how spaces are changing, how the stories of how those spaces were used become erased. If I make a decision to spend my money buying coffee from the Turkish shop that was there before and not the new one that's now here because I recognize that my economic decision has an impact on my high street. Right? So I can't be like, oh, I care deeply about gentrification and I'm only going to buy coffee from the new trendy place. <laughs> right? So um, this is essentially our responsibility to understand that though the doors might be open, the people who are on the outside are not going to, we shouldn't have to put the onus on them to take the steps towards us. We should go and meet them where they, they are. This is the story that Christ tells, right? He meets people where they are. He speaks to them in a language they understand. He tells them parables because they, they get those stories, right? He talks to fishermen about fish. Like, um, we can't sit in a building um, and say we are here for the world. We're here for the community. And, um, and also, I think... It's, it's recognizing that we cannot, not one space can be suitable for everybody. Um, or, is ex well, you know, people congregate in the way that they do. What we have to do is not just open our arms and wait for them to come, but recognize that we're doing everything that we can to know them, to hear their voices, to hear their stories, to provide them the platform that I have been provided today. You know, it's like... It's not, it's, it's only, it'll only take you so far to invite them in and give them a seat in the pew if they never see anybody like them up at the front. This is true too of TV. This is why, you know, diverse casts matter. This is why diverse movies do better at the box office because people pay and because they enjoy seeing themselves reflected back at them. So it's not good enough to say you can buy a ticket and watch the movie. It's like, how can I become a part of the show? Wow. <laughs> Right, thank you very much, Liz. That's absolutely fantastic.